even as uh, Dean uh, was praying just a moment ago, uh, just thinking of just the joy that prayer is of being able to be rushed into the throne room of God, uh, being able to uh, have this intimate conversation <laughs> with the Lord Almighty. And uh, it is such a joy to be able to do that. Uh, just encouragement to our hearts and our souls. And, uh, and even over the course of these last number of weeks, uh, we've been looking through the, the book of Mark, and we'll continue to do so uh, this morning as well. One of the goals, one of the objectives with this as well is to see Jesus is to know him better, is to love him more, is to grow in our affections for him as we see him healing, as we see him teaching, um, as we see him interacting with others, see him showing grace, standing up for truth, all these things, uh, that our hearts would swell in love for Jesus Christ because we have seen him and seen him, him work. Um, and that would even bolster our time of prayer because we know this Jesus all the more so. Uh, and so I pray as well, just even this morning, that would be the case. We've, we've seen Jesus healing. We've, we've seen Jesus doing this, even speaking. Uh, we have seen him uh, healing great numbers and healing just individuals. See him preaching, calling others. And we'll continue to see these things again this morning. We'll be looking specifically at Mark 3, verses 7 through 35, uh, as we're going to be taking a close look at what it means as well for us to be pursuing action, for us to be following Jesus, this Jesus that we've been, been able to know more and more. What does it mean to follow after him? And the reading, you're reading all of the verses, 7 through 35. It's be a little longer reading, so as you stand, stand in a comfortable position, I suppose. Um, but would you please go ahead and do that and stand uh, with me as we hear God's word, God speaking to us. Book of Mark, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. 
But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And God, as we consider these things and consider all these different groups and, and individuals, Lord, who, who are seeking you, pursuing you, seeking to follow you, Lord, uh, God, we just pray that you would just give us insight and clarity onto what it means to follow after the God of this universe. Lord, we need your help, we need your aid, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would do the great work this morning in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. One name you may remember from your history books is Hernando Cortez. Hernando Cortez was the Spanish explorer who was seeking riches and fame to, and sailing to the New World. And in 1519, Cortez and his crew sailed from the Old World, from Spain, heading to the New World, but they sailed through Cuba where there was an outpost of the Spanish government, some Spanish uh, conquerors and explorers. And Cortez sought to go further and deeper into the uncharted territory than, when, than where they were into what is now modern-day Mexico. He had heard stories of Tenochtitlan and the Aztec Empire that were there, being this place of vast wealth, uh, just these rumors and stories of this native people. He took his, his crew, and against the orders of the crown, who wanted him to remain there in Cuba, he instead pressed on into Mexico. Upon arriving, he heard some complaints from some of his men, some whom wanted to go back to Cuba for fear that they were breaking the law and that they were just simply going to be arrested whenever they would eventually return. So they wanted to go back as soon as they would land in Mexico. Cortez needed men who would not enter into such a hostile and volatile world with thoughts of maybe going back really quickly or just simply being there half-heartedly. So upon arriving on the Mexican shore and with his crew firmly placed on land, Cortez ordered some of his men to go back to the ships but to set them on fire and to destroy them. To be a crew member under the leadership of Hernando Cortez required an incredible dedication. And it came at a high cost for them as well. If Cortez, a man who was merely after wealth and after fame, he was demanding such a high cost to be with him, how much more ought we to expect a great cost for following the one who is after and pursuing our very souls. 
how easily we can walk through this thing that we call the Christian life and fail to see the stakes that are at play, fail to see the demands that are upon our lives, fail to see the cost of what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, and what we've seen in this, in this text already is that because the cost of following Jesus is indeed so high, that let us then knowingly and willingly become a disciple of Jesus Christ and to do the will of God, what Jesus says there at the end of the chapter. What we're going to notice in this text are these, these four groups of people mentioned, how each one of them are relating to the teaching, to the miracles, to the life of Jesus. Well, we'll notice that each one is teaching us something about what it means to follow after Jesus, either rightly or wrongly in many cases as well. So the first group that I want to, to consider here, and the first one that we see is that of the crowd. See the crowd there starting in, in, in verse 7, that they are, to be, that we see here of what it means to be following Jesus with sincerity, or the importance of following Jesus with sincerity. Look there again in our text at verse 7. It says that that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Last week, we talked about the incredibly charged atmosphere that Jesus was in. Uh, by He was forgiving the sins of the paralytic, uh, eating with the sinners, challenging the Pharisees' notion of worship, specifically regarding the Sabbath and regarding fasting. In all of this, the temperature in the air was rising and rising. The Pharisees were becoming all the more frustrated even beginning to make plans to destroy him, as he says there in chapter 3 and in verse 6. And to the dismay of the religious leaders, the crowds in all this are growing and growing. More and more people are coming. People want to hear this Jesus who challenges the status quo. They want to see this fight that's taking place. Whatever was going on inside of them to want to you know, to want to come was probably the same thing that gets people to click on those clickbait links that promises that some you know, politician annihilates the talk show host or some student at a university only to find out that they just had a really productive and respectful conversation. You're like, oh man, I was kind of hoping for a little, a little better fight than that. That's what the people were kind of expecting. They wanted, they wanted some fireworks. However, Jesus really is putting the, the Pharisees in their place and news is apparently traveling. People come from all over Israel and beyond to hear Jesus speak. One commentator noted that if news is traveling that far about Jesus, then it is quite likely that there could be tens of thousands of people in the crowd. That is based on the vast crowds that would be there as well, just for the, uh, the feasts and the festivals. They were coming from all over. And here again, we have this, but to to come to Jesus, to see him work, to see these miracles, to bring their sick, and to maybe hear these fights that are going on. They want to hear this man from Nazareth. 
But the crowd is a bit of a paradox. It needs, uh, excuse me, its needs, the, the vast needs of the people, command Jesus' attention. And Jesus is fully aware and fully attentive to the misery that is present in these vast numbers. All these people that are coming to him with their, with their great needs. And Jesus knows this. But its cry and its clamor for him is not one, ultimately, of genuine faith. What Mark is showing us is that just because an individual, or even 10,000 individuals, even though they are present, they know Jesus can offer them something, that it does not mean they are true followers of Christ. Not all who are attracted to Jesus become followers of Jesus. Mark describes many people who recognize what Jesus can do for their bodies, but who fail to recognize their greater need for spiritual healing. In fact, this is a theme that the Apostle John picks up at great length, especially in John chapter 6, where this is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, something we're going to look at a little bit later on in the book of Mark. But John adds a bunch of extra details of what happens after that. After this happens and the, the crowds there, there, Jesus calls them out for saying, you have arrived so that your bellies might be full. That is why you are here. And Jesus goes on, even these great crowds, to speak some very hard things, to say some very hard things. In John 6, 55, he tells them, my flesh is true food and my blood true drink. And as he tells them this, they are appalled and astonished that Jesus would speak in such a way. And the response, John tells us in verse 66, that after this, many disciples turned back and followed him no longer. The same is true today. Many people are attracted to Jesus for what they can gain, but have no concept of their need to submit to the Lord of hosts. Not all who speak the name of Jesus are believers in Jesus Christ. Among the crowd, there were people possessed by demons that hailed Jesus as the Son of God. They identified Jesus rightly, but they didn't believe in Him. In the same way we recognize that it's not enough to say true things about Jesus, we need to repent and believe. It's a tragic irony of all this. With the demons knowing Jesus is the Son of God, but yet the crowd saw him as a mere miracle worker, only to meet their selfish ends. True and pure motives is something that the people of God have struggled with since the beginning. Israel wanting their manna in the wilderness, but not the provider of the manna. Israel wanting and willing to be ruled by a king, but not the King of Kings. Even today, how often we come to the Lord in search of the gifts that the Lord provides, but not the giver of those gifts. I come to church because mom and dad make me. I come to church because, well, it's just the right thing to do. Because if not, people will ask where I was. I come to church because it's what I've always done. I sacrifice my time to serve others because it makes me feel good about myself. Because I can then tell others about it. I serve others because I'll feel guilty if I don't. 
I spend time in the Word and prayer because then maybe God will make my life easier. I spend time in the Word and prayer so that my kids will know that I'm spiritual. So that I can be more knowledgeable about Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I am just scratching the surface of how we can pursue Jesus without really pursuing Him. And I'm just talking about my own heart and my own excuses and my own bad motives. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord is not considered merely with what we do, but is considered with our motivations, with our hearts. The answer, though, is not to then just say, well then, I guess I just need to give up. If I have wrong motives for coming to church, then I need to not come. If I have wrong motives for spending time in prayer, then I need to not do it. That is not the answer. It's not to say, well, my motives are like the crowds, so I ought not to follow Jesus. The answer, if you feel your heart being pulled by some other motive, which we all experience, is still to do it. Still do the thing that God calls us to do. Still follow after Jesus. But repent. Repent of your wayward heart. Bring it to the Lord and say, God, forgive me. My heart is wayward. My heart is is seeking after things that aren't ultimately you. Plead with the Lord to soften your heart toward Him. Following Jesus, it means sincerity of heart, and we need the Spirit of God to work that within us. However, to, to follow after Jesus, it also means that we need clarity. We need clarity when it comes to following after Jesus. I'm going to continue to look at this passage. Look at the scribes and the Pharisees here. So we're actually going to be jumping down all the way down to verse 22 uh, with this. You remember the scribes and the Pharisees, they actually, they are following Jesus also, although not in the way that we ought to hope for. They tag along with the crowds. They go into the houses where Jesus is performing these miracles, sitting down for a good view. They sit in judgment, interpreting his actions and his words, not in light of the Word of God, but in light of their preferences and their own made-up presuppositions. Look there at verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. The scribes and the Pharisees are not denying the obvious power of Jesus. They saw the paralyzed man and knew Jesus was not simply committing some kind of parlor trick. However, because they did not believe that he is who he says he is, their only alternative was to give credit to another power, the power of Satan. They are so blinded by their rage that they speak of what is light as darkness. The lens through which they are interpreting truth is that which they want to be true. They have their prejudgments. They have their presuppositions made up ahead of time and are fitting these healings into their categories that they've already made up in their own minds. Well, Jesus is not this So this is the only alternative. Why is he not this? Because I don't want him to do this. Because he can't be this. 
Being a follower of Jesus means taking him at his word. Even if it is a difficult word, even if it is a word which challenges you to the very core. It means I will follow Jesus wherever he will take me. Not simply where I want Jesus to go. When he says, my love for him should be so great that I must hate my parents, my siblings, and my children in comparison of the love that is demanded of me, I must believe and follow. When he says, it is better for me to pluck out my eye, which is causing me to stumble, than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell, I need to hear those words of Christ. To truly follow Jesus Christ means to truly be honest with yourself. We read about and even laugh about the the sheer blindness of the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. How incredibly unaware they are of themselves. Yet the irony, when we read something like the story of of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 18, this parable where the tax collector where he, he, he sees his own sin and he beats his breast and he cries out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the, the Pharisee, which, which says to the people, thank you, God, that I am not like the tax collector. And the irony of it all is that we come away from that story and we say, God, I thank you that I'm not like that Pharisee. It's absurd. We're doing the very same thing that the parable is warning us against. We can be so blind to our own sin. We need clarity to see when our pride is keeping us from being bold for Jesus. We need clarity to see when our hearts are filled with self-love instead of love for others. We need clarity to see where the Lord is working through His servants instead of dismissing it as a work of Satan. For here, Jesus warns them of the unpardonable sin, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Look there in verse 28. It says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is a, a passage which has rightfully struck fear in the hearts of, of God's people throughout the centuries. This, this sin that is being described, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, just to simply summarize what it is that is that's taking place, I will uh, quote one author, Kent Hughes, he says this, he says, the ongoing continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and the saviorhood of Christ. It is the perversion in the heart which chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. This is what the Pharisees were committing. This is what the Holy Spirit were doing. It was this constant rejection of Jesus Christ as he is putting before them evidence after evidence that he is indeed who he says he is, but that constant rejection and instead even calling it the work of Satan. I actually even give you a word perhaps of comfort, or perhaps of judgment. If this is something that you felt that you may have committed 
then it is quite likely, excuse me, then it is quite unlikely that you have. Since those who continue to blaspheme do not care one shred about what they have done before the Lord. But if we sit here and we say, I really don't care. I don't care about who this Jesus is. I don't care about who he claims to be. This is unimportant. This is unnecessary. It is at that point that we run the risk of doing that which Jesus is warning the Pharisees about that they are on the precipice of, that they are on the cusp of. But in fact, God and his people, he gives us as his grace, he gives us conviction of sin, he grants us the, the, the need for the Lord, that we see it, that we know it, that we know our failings, that we know that we fall short day after day. And so I would even, if you guys a word of comfort, this is something that you read this and you're like, oh no, then I would actually say that that may very well be the Holy Spirit comforting you, saying, yes, you need Jesus Christ. You need him. He is your only hope. He is your only salvation. So we need this, this clarity that the, that the Pharisees were clearly lacking. It's what it means to follow after Jesus. It means being, being clear about Jesus is indeed working. It means being clear about ourselves and that we fall woefully short of the, the perfection of the Lord. But to follow Jesus also means that we need to be following Jesus without reservation. If you look at the, the family and what they represent. Look there in verse 21. It says, When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And go down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? I cannot imagine what it must have been like to grow up in the household of Joseph and Mary. To be the brother of Jesus. The expectations. Remember, Jesus is the oldest as well. Uh, the constant self-comparisons, let alone you know, parental comparisons. Yet you know in all of that that Jesus was still kind and loving and patient with his siblings. He was without sin. So creating this, whatever was going on in their hearts, probably this very weird, we love him, but certainly not like the Son of God, love him, bow down and worship him, kind of love him. Just how that dynamic worked, I, I can, we can only ask when we get to the other side of what that must have been like. So when they hear that Jesus is ruining his health by being unable to eat because the crowds are so large gathering to him, they scoff at him and seek to seize him, to capture him, to stop him from all this nonsense that he's about. In Luke's account, he, in Luke chapter 6, he adds that Jesus goes off by himself to pray once the crowds get too large. Perhaps they thought that Jesus was just this strange religious zealot praying by himself for hours, harming his own body in the process of whatever this delusion is that he's under. Regardless whether they were trying to protect him 
or if they were merely mocking him, they considered him to be too radical. His actions, they thought, were not consistent with reality. But here's the thing. Christianity needs more of Christ's madness. It needs more of it. The Apostle Paul was gripped with this madness. In Acts 26, which led him to pursue the fame of Christ above all else, when he was arrested and put on trial before King Agrippa, having to give defense for why he was causing such a stir in these Roman provinces, why he was speaking against the religious views of the day, he shared how Christ was crucified to fulfill the Old Testament, how He rose again from the dead on the third day, and how Christ met Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul is saying, these things are true, and I can do no other but to share them. How does the king respond to Paul? It says in Acts 26-24, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Beloved, if Christ is who He says He is, then the sanest thing we can do is follow after Him. To follow Him is to be a fool in the eyes of the world. It is to follow Him without reservation of what others think. It is to follow Him with sheer abandonment. If Christ is who He says He is, then the sanest thing in the world is to follow Him. How great are the reservations we make for following Christ. I will follow Him insofar as He does not make me say something that will make me look weird in front of others. I will follow Him insofar as He does not make me give up my weekends and evenings. I will follow Him insofar as He does not make me give up my job. I will follow Him insofar as He does not make me give up my girlfriend or boyfriend. I will follow Him insofar as He does not make me give up the comforts of my home. I will follow Him insofar as He does not make me give up my friends or my family. Jesus, You are out of Your mind. And when they, His family, when they came to seek Jesus... He dismisses them. says that they are not His true mother and brothers. So then what is it to follow Jesus? What do we have before us? Following Jesus according to God's will. We have Jesus calling His disciples. Look there at verse 13. And He went up to the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Look all the way down to verse 35. This for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus goes up to the mountain and appoints his 12 disciples. Notice the purpose of these disciples, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Disciples were called to be with Jesus and to go out. 
Spend time with your Jesus as he meets you in his word. Spend time with your Jesus as you gather with God's people. Spend time with Jesus where he forms you, where he shapes you, where he conforms you to his own image, and then show others who this Jesus is. To be a disciple is to become like the teacher. To know what he knows, to love what he loves, to pursue what he pursues. As one writer put it, discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of disciples. We are called to be more than mere fans of Jesus who watch from the sideline without entering into the insanity. We must step out of the crowds and answer the call to follow after him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who knew the great cost of following after Jesus, the early 20th century uh, German pastor who, when the Nazi regime was developing, at first he fled to the U.S., as someone uh, who did not think it was right to, to fight in war as a pacifist. And as things got worse and worse, he said, this is not right. This is not where I must remain. And so he felt led by the Lord to return to Germany, to not only be a witness to, the, to God's people that were there, but also to combat the evil. And he ended up being part of a plan to try to overthrow uh, some Nazi leadership, was caught, was thrown into a concentration camp. And just days before the war ended, he was put to death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer knew the costliness of what it meant to follow after Jesus Christ. And he said this. He said, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Are you following Jesus? Or are you stuck in the crowd, content with watching and quick to abandon once the sayings get too hard? Are you a Pharisee with your mind already made up, only willing to understand Jesus in light of what you want to be true? Are you a member of only his blood family and only willing to dip your toes in? You have reservations, only wanting to play it safe. Jesus is calling you to follow him today. Would you hear his call? One last story I want to share with you is concerning one that you might even be familiar with. 
is with the Moravians, the uh, group of, of missionaries, especially from the, from the 1700s. As the, the story goes, there were these two men, these Moravian missionaries, that wanted to make the name of Christ known throughout the world. And there was one island that the Lord kept drawing them to, an island in the Caribbean. But this island was one of a, of a landowner, and it had countless, countless slaves that were there on this land. And the only way that these two missionaries could go there would be if they themselves entered into this island as slaves. As they considered it, these, young, these men in their young 20s, they decided it was worth the cost. It was worth the cost for Jesus Christ. So as they got on their boat and as their family said goodbye to them, perhaps for the last time, as they were willingly entering into slavery so that the name of Christ could be known. They said this as the the family was looking on and listening to them. They said, May the lamb who was slain receive the reward for his suffering. May the lamb who was slain receive the reward for his suffering. Will you follow Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, to follow after you is the greatest thing imaginable. Lord, it is hard. Lord, it is a road which is costly. Lord, we so often make so light of it. God, if we only knew, if I only knew, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to step out in boldness, those hard things that you have for us, Lord. We know you are present. We know your Holy Spirit enables us. Lord, give us the faith to do those things that you call us to do, to follow after you. In Christ's name, amen.